Hey everybody, welcome to Dear Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Hope you are coming back from a long, restful, introspective, and productive long weekend as we took time away, time away from work, to really think about what America means to us and what America we want it to be. And so as we approach the second half of 2020, I hope that we can all spend a little bit more time and intention in committing ourselves to doing things to make America the wonderful place that we know it can be and the way that it should be. And so again, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and really excited to share this conversation with staff writer at ESPN, June Lee, today. It's one of these things that I think we find, I find so cool still, seeing somebody that looks like me and looks like you on TV talking about something that we really enjoy so much and miss so dearly right now uh, in sports. I talked to June about six weeks ago in the middle of May, and this sat a little while as we were uh, pivoting and and, um, working on different projects in June, Letters for Black Lives, and really excited to share this with you. I think the content is still relevant as it is today. Uh, If you have any friends that are interested in journalism, interested in storytelling, or just a big sports junkie, whether it is baseball or um, profiling of athletes or Olympic athletes like Chloe Kim, be sure to invite them into this episode and share it out with them and you know, ask them to give them a listen. Really excited to share this with you. I um, had such a fun time with June. I want to thank him for uh, bringing us together. I want to thank Sopan, our mutual friend and former guest on The Years in Americans for connecting us. And for everybody who has uh, listened, subscribed to, and and followed us on all the social different channels, thank you so much for making The Asian Americans a reality and something that I really, really enjoy getting to do. Thanks so much. And without further ado, here's my conversation with June Lee. Welcome, everybody, to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you health and happiness. Uh, we're still going through some challenging times right here in the middle of May. Um, stay-at-home orders are being extended uh, where I am in California and where our guest is in New York. You know, things are not looking much better. So we hope that you are staying home, taking all the precautions that you can so we can go back to enjoying some of the things that really, really bring us happiness. My favorite place in the entire universe is a little place just north of downtown called Dodger Stadium. It is my favorite place in the world because it's a place where I can relax. It's where I've created a lot of fun memories with my dad, uh, with my kid, with my friends. And sports, as we all know, is one of the very few things that bonds people together. Strangers hug. It just incites emotions that Really, you can't be duplicated with any other thing in life. Um, And right now, as we're going through these challenging times, sports is paused uh, for the most part here in America. Um, Seasons were canceled. Seasons were pushed back. And who knows what will happen with football in the next few months. And as a fan of sports growing up, uh, most of us watch sports. And there are two things that I think that are lacking and we can do a better job of. Uh, One is people that look like us on the field. And two is people that look like us in the booth, because the act of playing is just as important as the one who are storytelling about it. So I am so, so, so excited to share this conversation with my guest today, June Lee, who is at ESPN, uh, the mothership, as they call it, in Bristol, Connecticut. Um, But he is a current American journalist uh, who's worked at places like uh, Bleacher Report wrote for The Ringer and now is has been about uh, ESPN for about a year. Um, yeah, yeah, one year now. One year. So excited, June. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. 
So this is an interesting time to be in the world of sports and particularly in the uh, era of talking about sports, writing about sports, talking about sports. Um, and, and so I, I shared with I shared this with you before we got on, and uh, many of my friends who are listening and watching may agree. Like, you have the job that we all dreamed of having as a kid. Um, wait a minute, you get to talk about sports, and they pay you to travel around the world and interview people, and that seems to be the dream. Um, it seems to be the dream, but for many of us, it was not a career path that was either encouraged or even made to believe possible by our parents because. You know, they encouraged us or nudged us to pursue um, something different. Um, And good or bad is, I guess, a a different conversation. But I want to learn about June in his earlier years. Um, How did the Lee family find their way to Boston as as an early or as as a kid? Um, When and where did you move to? And and how did that shape your early experiences as a child? Yeah, so I was born in May of 1995. And then we moved to the United States uh, two months after that. So I was born in Seoul. My dad was working for Daewoo at the time. Uh, and uh, my mom was a high school art teacher in Seoul. And uh, they packed things up. And my dad was going to pursue his, his PhD in accounting at Boston University. And so we moved to the US. We moved to Malden, Massachusetts, which is this small little town. Um, it's a small town, kind of suburb of, of Boston. And then we eventually ended up moving to Brookline, which is where I spent most of my childhood growing up um, with a four your interlude in Western Massachusetts, but I ended up graduating from Brookline High School, which is uh, kind of the first suburb outside of uh, outside the city of Boston. It's a thirty minute walk to Fenway Park. You know, I could I could get on the subway there and uh, and get to downtown Boston in 10, 15 minutes. So uh, that's that's kind of where I, I grew up. Uh, there was there wasn't necessarily a huge Asian American community, although my childhood home is across the street from a Korean church that we did not attend, um, <laughs> and. Uh, and there, you know, there we used to we used to like go to. There wasn't a ton of like huge Korean groceries stores when I was growing up, but by the end, by the time I graduated, uh, you know, like an H Mart had opened up and stuff. So things definitely changed over the course of my childhood. Um, and uh, it's I, I don't know. I think it's definitely an interesting time right now to be an Asian American. I think there's a lot of things happening right now. So yeah, it's it's good good things and bad, right? Uh, some of the challenges, obviously, we are all feeling it. Those of uh, folks in the media have done an amazing job of reporting some of the, the negative things and, and bringing light to the racism, the hate crimes, and all the things that um, need to be shared and, and can no longer be ignored. Um, some of the good things, like you know, earlier this week, uh, the five-hour PBS documentary uh, Asian Americans featured or premiered, and, and that was an amazing story tell of some of the stories about our people that are uh, left untold. And um, particularly in my parents' case too, we came here in the early '90s and. We didn't. They didn't learn about civil rights. They didn't learn about all the stuff that we should have learned about. And then so they put us on this quick path, this narrow path to, you know, study hard, go to a good school, and amazing things will happen. Um, Jun, share with me how you fell in love with sports. Boston is a big, big, big sports town. We all know that. Um, and in high school, you got involved with journalism very early on. Um, how did you find your love for sports and writing as a kid? Yeah, it really helped to grow up in the Boston area during a time where literally all four sports teams win a championship. So, you know, from 2001 on, I saw the Patriots, Red Sox, Celtics, and Bruins all win championships. And so, you know, that has an effect on the culture of the city, what people care about, uh, what people are talking about. And, 
sports radio is like the lifeblood of a lot of culture within Boston uh, and just the sports pages in general. It's, you know, it's in, in Boston sports is like the, it's like talking about the weather. Like you talk about the Red Sox, like anything else. And it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things where like everyone has a Red Sox cap. If you're a, uh, uh, if you live in Boston in some form, you know, so uh, it, it's kind of inescapable. And so I grew up reading the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald at a, in, in listening to the sports radio stations in town. Um, and I, I always wanted to be a baseball player. And I think like a lot of people in the sports media wasn't good enough. Um, and so was <laughs> decided to pursue the next best thing, which is which was being asking, telling the stories and asking the questions. And so, um, you know, I just tried to pursue that as as much as I could. Um, just through, just through high school and, you know, my mom is an artist and so she was always more of a creative type and, and always mm-hmm. kind of encouraged me to pursue those avenues, um, and, and kind of gave me room to, to experiment and be weird and, and, and try things. Um, and so, you know, when she saw that I had an interest in writing, she signed me up for a ton of writing classes and, uh, just kind of encouraged me. You know, I think my dad, it took a little bit longer for him to get on board in terms of me pursuing a sports media career, but I think, by the end of my freshman year, when I was, you know, publishing freelance stuff and getting internship offers, um, I think a lot of those concerns had kind of been assuaged in in really positive ways. And so, um, I've been very, very grateful and and uh, thankful to have two parents who've been incredibly supportive of my career choice. Um, and I think it's it's really because of a lot of it has a lot to do with the fact that Boston just instilled this passion for sports mm-hmm. in me, especially growing up in that era. Um, you know, my childhood was childhood is a formative time for so many people. Right. And having every single sports team win a championship during your childhood definitely does something to kind of shape the way that you think about the world. (laughs) One, you are spoiled as hell, dude. Uh, growing up when all your four teams are winning, uh, obviously it is arguably, I don't know, the New Yorkers will argue, uh, the most passionate sports town, maybe Cubs fans will get angry about it. Um, but that's cool growing up you know, as a winner growing up, you know, around a lot of celebrations and parades and uh, sort of taking over the ethos of a city. Um, you answered a question already that I had because your parents, as you mentioned, one is an academic, um, so much so that he pursued a doctorate degree in accounting, uh, which is as least creative as I can imagine it to be. But then yes. your mother was an artist and yeah they make a sports writer, right? And, and a sports broadcaster. Um, yeah. But but I guess you, your mom sort of won out in sort of let's let June pursue his, his dream and his, his passions early, which is really, really critical to encourage uh, kids when you see that, when you see a little bit sign of that. Yeah, I think I think part of what helped there too is that we grew up in Boston and my dad really loved sports. Like he was always someone who loved sports too. So like it was it wasn't a matter of him like understanding why sports matters to people like he understands it which is presumably a huge hurdle for a lot of asian americans trying to face this field right um thankfully my you know when my dad came to the united states michael jordan was in his prime uh, everyone's watching the last dance right now like he was watching the last dance happen in real time like a lot of americans were uh and you know i i Four years into us moving here, Pedro Martinez in 1999 had one of the greatest pitching seasons ever, uh, and him and Nomar were two iconic figures in the city of Boston. I think that got him. He, he told me that Pedro really, really got him hooked on the Red Sox, and uh, you know, from there on, I just started going to Red Sox games with with him. And uh, you know, I think, I think the 
the worry that he displayed was more of the fact of like making money and supporting a family and making a living um, rather than understanding the value of sports, which I, I guess I realize in retrospect now is a very grateful thing that I didn't even have to have to explain to them why sports matter. Cause I, I played sports growing up and my dad was always super supportive and, you know, we'd play catch in the backyard and stuff. So thankfully I was in a very grateful situation where both of my parents understood the value of sports at the very least. My under- my mom very much understood stood the value of, you know, creative pursuits. Um, she's currently actually pursuing um, a master's degree in interior architecture and, uh, and design. Um, and so like she, so she understands the value of all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I had I was incredibly grateful to have two incredibly nurturing parents and supporting parents who, uh, who I think once they realized that I really cared and was was uh, you know good enough to at least get a job out of college that they were going to just kind of put 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 the full, put their full support behind me and then uh, by the end of my junior year. Um, I was able to get the an internship at the Washington Post, which is, um, you know, one of the most competitive college journalism internships in the country. And when I applied to that, I I really didn't think I had a chance. I really just applied to just like see what happened. And so when I when I got that internship, it was kind of a total shock. And I think once that happened, once the Washington Post was like, hey, you know, they have thousands of people apply and they choose like twenty five. 25 right. people it's it's like a it's like a one it's like a 0.1 percent acceptance rate in terms of just the applications they get and the number of interns they can actually choose so once i once i figured out that calculation and that i'd worked hard enough to get to that place i think my parents were kind of i think that i think ever i think they they kind of realized that I would, be, I would be fine as long as i continue to work hard <laughs> and uh you know put my teeth to the grindstone so very cool man I, I, you I, know I was, I was pretty fortunate in that regard yeah hey that that's awesome um in the middle 90s or mid 90s uh so we we moved to LA in '92, and you know every single Korean person in LA and probably America became Dodger fans at least for a little bit because Pac Teno started to play here in '94, and I think that was obviously a big shift, a seismic shift in the way that Korean Americans and Asian Americans saw American sports because he was one of the first people that people saw on screen that looked like me and you, uh, kicked ass. Literally kicked somebody's ass uh, in, in in the very very famous flying kick game against the Angels. Um, what sort of influences did you have growing up in either the world of sports or in journalism, where perhaps emulate maybe not the right word, but somebody that you saw yourself in? Sure. Yeah. I mean the first the first Asian. I mean you, you could talk about players on the field, right? So. Park, uh, Channel Park, obviously. Um, Byung-Yung Kim was on the Red Sox when I was when I was. Mm-hmm. Byung-Yung Kim was the reason uh, why I sat down and watched the baseball game with my dad for the first time. Like he was ah. on the Red Sox, he was pitching, and so we watched baseball for the first time because of that. And I got hooked after that because uh, David Ortiz had a. It was David Ortiz's first year with the Red Sox, and he hit mm-hmm. a walk-off single in like the the tenth inning or something against the Yankees. And then after that, I was hooked. Um, and so. That played a huge influence, obviously. But then when you look on the media side, there's obviously not a, a ton of Asian-Americans uh, in sports media. Uh, Michael Kim, I think, mm-hmm. is someone that a lot of people in the Asian-American community know. He's become some, uh, a mentor to me. I've met him through just the Asian-American Journalists Association community. Um, and uh, he was obviously a huge inspiration just being an Asian face anchoring sports center. Uh, and then later, I think, I think something that kind of helped alleviate the fears of my parents was seeing someone like Pablo Torre on television. Obviously, Pablo mm-hmm. is not Korean American, but and he's Filipino American. But just having an Asian face, someone who uh, 
you know, my parents obviously wanted me to, to go to a good college. And the fact that Pablo went to Harvard and was working at ESPN, uh, that meant something to them as an Asian American, right? As seeing that is a viable path and it makes like there's people who have done it before. Um, and yeah. then obviously since then, like, you know, Jay Caspian Kang has become one of my, my biggest mentors um, and one of my biggest trolls on Twitter. Um, and, uh, Jay, uh, Jay was one of my first like big Korean American emotional supports in the journalism community in terms of just like encouraging me to, to pursue it and, uh, and, and, and just giving me really, really good advice. And then, um, obviously Mina Kimes has become such a huge star at ESPN over the course of the last couple of years. And, uh, I, I've known Mina before, uh, she was, she, I remember she had just started ESPN, uh, and I, I, she was friends with Jay and, you know, we, we all kind of connected on Twitter, um, I was in college at the time and there was obviously not that many Korean American people. So you just kind of stick out in the crowd. Uh, and, uh, Mina was gracious enough to get to, to grab breakfast with me. And I just like asked for, for a ton of advice. Uh, and then within like a year or two later, she was like on all of the TV shows on ESPN. Uh, and she, she's, she's been, you know, as she's also been someone who I've, who I've, uh, you know, asked for advice and, um, has given me really good guidance, uh, over the course of just the kind of first couple of years of my career. And, um, you know, is they're they're incredible role models i don't know yeah. they're they they've they're all incredibly smart they work hard they're really good at their jobs um it's uh i i feel very grateful that uh i had people like them to look up to because i assume for for someone like me and or pablo it was a lot harder not knowing just not having as many asian faces in the, sure. in the community so i know for me just as as someone i've told this to them before too like it, it was a very very big deal to have people like them because it definitely alleviated fears on my parents end and fears on my own den and my own insecurities <laughs> right so um it's uh it, you know it there's a lot of influence there um that's yeah. played into played into my career so far i think you know, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Michael um, at a gala many, many years uh, after I first I saw him on TV, and it's been a few years now. Um, and I remember watching him because they put him on the late, late night Sports Center on ESPN two when ESPN two was really like the secondary channel to the main ESPN. And I watched that show purposely because the content was the same, but it was a dude that looked like me, right? And it was a little bit later in the evening. Um, it was probably not the most viewed. Um, but even then, I was just... And then, you know, and they put him on the... I think ESPN World was a thing that was like, you know, the the global channel. And um, I, I was, had no idea that was a thing. That was a honest. thing. I There was, you know, I mean, before the internet and streaming, they I think if you look at old clips of Michael, like he's not obviously on like the, the 7 or 10 p.m. primetime sports center, right? And they got me pissed. I was like, dude, he's just as good as everybody else, but why you put him in the back? Um, obviously, you know, I don't know the real reasons, but uh, but yeah, I, I told that story to Michael. Um, I was such a fanboy when I met him. I was like, oh my God, like I've seen you on TV. Don't and... worry, I was a fanboy to Michael when I met him too, so. <laughs> Michael, if you're listening, uh, thank you for all that you've done and then thank you for all that you continue to do. Um, Let's go back in your story a little bit. So you graduated from high school in the greater Boston area. You went to BU for a year. You transferred to Cornell. Obviously, academics is very, very important to your family, um, as evidenced by your your parents' academic pursuits and um, just us being Korean. Like you sort of have to check those boxes, even if you do want to go and venture into um, a wild, wild, different type of career. Um, Tell me about that because I think part of it was you had such a rich and robust experience in Boston, right, through high school and the experiences that you've had running your student paper. Um, and then to go to Ithaca 
and you're reporting on uh, Cornell sports, which not the same thing as Boston professional sports, perhaps a little bit of patience in I'm honing my craft, I'm learning, I'm building. Um, and, and so tell me about that progression. And you mentioned the acceptance into the Washington Post internship program. What do you? What did you put in that application that you still believe today was the thing that made you shine? Uh, I didn't really view as writing about Cornell sports as like honing my craft because I just, for me, I just wanted to get better. Like I'm constantly in the process of getting better. Like I'm constantly in the process of trying to hone my craft or just get better at writing or choose better words or have better sentence structure or, you know, just general piece structure in general. Like I'm always constantly thinking about that. So I just viewed it as an opportunity to like deeply report on a community that is undercovered, which was Cornell sports. And uh, I viewed it as an opportunity to like learn how to develop relationships with coaches and the administration there. Uh, And so I, you know, it's it's easy to to be like, you know, nobody cares about Cornell sports, which is true. We, you know, people <laughs> to a certain degree, right? Like we didn't have more than 500 people reading our articles on the Daily Sun for like a hockey story. Even even though hockey is a huge sport at Cornell, you know, we didn't have more than 500 to 1,000 people reading a hockey story. Um, but, you know, for me, like I, I didn't take any of that for granted because I – because it was a smaller school, I had a lot I – could, I could go to the football coach's office and we could just mm. talk football for an hour. I could go to the athletic director and get an interview like the next day. It was interesting because recently I got I had an opportunity to speak to a class at Columbia Journalism School, uh, who, which is taught by Sean Gregory, who, who works over at Time Magazine. And uh, Sean – uh, was really good friends with the Cor- with the Cornell basketball coach Brian Earl, who got hired when when I was at Cornell, and so I wrote a big feature just about how that hiring process came about, mostly because I was curious about how a college hires a basketball coach in general. Um, as much you know, obviously I cared about Brian getting hired, but I, I really cared about just trying to figure out how colleges hire coaches. Um, and uh, it turned out that Sean read that story and brought it up three years later, and so like here was this journalist at Time Magazine. Uh, and I could have easily just, you know, given that I had written about the Red Sox before, been like, you know, Cornell, nobody cares about Cornell sports, whatever. But like, I don't know. I really invested myself in that community and I thought I got a lot out of it. Uh, and I really, really value my time on the Cornell Daily Center for that reason. You know, but like even beyond that, like I I honestly like I, I did a ton of freelance writing in college. I wrote for the Red Sox blog Over the Monster, which is under the SB Nation umbrella. That was like the majority of the writing that I did, I did that more than I wrote for the student newspaper. And then I did a bunch of freelance writing. I, I wrote for SB Nation. I did a, a long form feature on Mookie Betts during his first year or first or second year with the Red Sox for, for SB Nation. And I reported that from my dorm room. Um, I, uh, I I did a freelance feature on Marquez Brownlee for The Ringer, my senior year of, of college. Uh, and so like, it, you know, it's... It's easy to be like, I'm in upstate New York. I'm disconnected from the world. But I also already had a network from just like interning and being active on Twitter. And so like, I just freelanced wrote from from Ithaca, New York. And I did it well enough to get noticed by the right people. And then eventually when I applied for the internship at the Washington Post, you know, the thing that they told me was obviously the, everyone who applies for that internship is going to work for the student newspaper. Who has a chance, right? So what is the thing that differentiates me? The thing that differentiated me was the fact that I did all of this online work. I mean, the editor who hired me for the internship literally told me that it was because I'd done a ton of online work and had a ton of blogging experience that other people did not have. Um, so uh, it was, it, it was, you know, I, I viewed it as college is just like a time to build up my skills in general. 
So I was just reading as much as I could. And then when I applied for the Washington Post internship, there was an essay prompt about, you know, why you're doing this in the first place, right? Like, why are you pursuing journalism? And I wrote about my Asian American identity and not having role models growing up and, and all of that stuff uh, and how much that meant to me and how much I wanted to tell stories that I didn't feel like were being told. And so you know, when I was at the Washington Post, I had an opportunity to write about Hyun Soo Kim, who is playing for the Baltimore Orioles and is now on the, the, uh, the LG Twins. Um, but he spent an, a year in, in Baltimore. I wrote a mini feature on what his cultural transition was like. Like that was a story that I felt incredibly proud of and ran on the top of the sports page in the Washington Post. And I was like, this is the whole point of doing this in the first place. So uh, it's to, I, th I think I touched on everything that you asked, but yeah, that's, that's basically kind of the, the summation of it is like everything is kind of, it's, it's not like one thing happens one after the other. Everything is kind of building on top of each other, you know? That's cool, man. Talk, talk to us about building your Twitter following and, and doing things that weren't necessarily required of you or necessary, right? Now, now you got a big Twitter following. I mean, hell, Andrew Yang follows you, which I guess is a big deal. Um, I don't know if you knew that or not, but he does follow you. Um, but like you said, a lot of the side work, a lot of the blogging and the things that don't often get noticed, but it's just the hustle of content creation is what got you noticed at the Washington Post. And I guess would guess that that contributed to you getting your your jobs and still having the influence that you have. Um, share with us some lessons that you learned in the hustle, the content creation and the repetition. Uh I, so like, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really view it as hustle as hustle because I just wanted to do it and I was bored. Like, and like I'm uh, in college, I, 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 I didn't really party that much. I did my homework. I had my friends obviously, but like, I was very, very focused on, on trying to make this happen because I knew that if I wanted to be at the top of my profession, um, or, or, or strive to be, you know, in, at the top of my profession that I have to work really hard. So, um, I didn't really view it as hustle. I just viewed it like I really care about baseball. Like that's the thing with this job is like I'm writing about sports at the end of the day. Like especially at a time like this, like you understand the importance of sports in many different ways, right? As just escapism for people, but also like how unimportant it is for the daily function of society, right? Um, and so uh, it's uh, – what was your question again? I think there's some lessons to be told, especially to young folks who want to achieve things at the highest level, but they tend to only do things that they think will get counted. But you started blogging and doing things and freelancing and submitting to blogs that were just doing things for the sake yeah. of doing it, as you mentioned. Yeah. It wasn't like, let's let's come up with a strategy and do the 10 things that will get me noticed at ESPN. It's, you know, you got to create content and write for when nobody is no reading, right? You have to create content when nobody's watching. Nobody's an overnight success when it comes to content, whether it's writing or video. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of some of the best advice that I got in terms of just pursuing the media industry in general um, was to uh, to kind of trust my instincts uh, and uh, to 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 know that editors are always going to give opportunities to people if you can show that you know how to do something. It's a lot. Getting that first opportunity is that hardest part. So for me, as someone in college who wanted to be a, a feature writer, I knew that that was a job that was very hard to get out of college because a lot of people take years working up from being a beat writer to becoming a feature writer. And maybe this was arrogant of me, but I felt that I had the capability of doing it as a college student. <laughs> And so I just worked on specifically feature writing, re like very, very, uh, with a lot of focus through college. So 
all of my freelance writing, all of my stuff on the Cornell Daily Sun, I was working towards building the skill of just becoming a better feature writer. So to mm. circle back, like, you know, I would I did deep features on the Cornell hockey goalies. And it wasn't because uh, necessarily that, like, I knew that there's going to be a, a huge audience for Cornell hockey. I just wanted to get better at interviewing people and getting people to open up, getting people to care about people beyond the, the sports field, right? Getting to know these guys' personalities. So I, I viewed it... Uh, all of this work is like building my skill set. Um, and so I realized when I thought back to my first editor at the Boston Herald telling me that like editors are going to give you opportunities once you know you, you prove how to do something, I figured that I might as well just create an opportunity for myself to show that I can do feature writing, which is what happened with the Mookie story. And once I had the Mookie story, um, which was like a 3,000 word feature for SB Nation, you know, a national publication, I could go to other editors and be like, hey, I've done this before. I know that I'm 20, 21 years old in college, but I've literally published this feature. You can read it. Like, I've, here's a story, here are a bunch of story ideas I had. And that got me a ton of opportunities. And, you know, uh, uh, when I did that freelance piece for The Ringer, it was, a, it was a story on a tech YouTuber, Marquez Brownlee. I used to do tech YouTube in high school. Uh, and I used to review iPhone cases and, and all that stuff. And so I knew a bunch of those people in, in the grassroots community from years before, before it, the community really blew up. I think Marquez is like 11 million YouTube subscribers. Now he's one of the biggest creators on the platform, but I profiled him when he, I think he had just passed maybe two or 3 million. Um, this was four years ago for the ringer. Uh, and, uh, that, that story it's a tech story. It got me noticed at Bleacher Report. It, it, caught, it caught the attention of my editors at Bleacher Report who saw that I also wrote about sports. And that's what eventually mm -hmm. got me my job. So everything, every opportunity kind of built on top of each other. And it was a lot of just, hey, I know that like nothing is going to, no opportunity is going to be directly handed to me. So I might as well just create the opportunity to show that I can do it. And then once I can show that I can do it, those opportunities might start coming. And that opportunity did come for you in a big way as you were nearing graduation at Cornell. Um, you started working for the Bleacher Report, which obviously one of the biggest uh, sports properties out there. Um, tons of eyeballs, tons of attention. Um, what did you do during that time? And what was one of the, the key critical moments that you felt that um, you've made it? Uh, when did your parents really acknowledge that you've made it as a journalist? Um, let's start with that. Let's talk about your parents. Uh, I don't know if I've ever. I don't think we've ever had that conversation. I don't think I've. I, I don't think there's anything as making it like. I mean, you're I on know, ESPN. I, they see you on TV, right? Like that's. I mean, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess in that regard, yeah. I mean, um, I, th I think, I think it really got real for my parents in realizing like how far this had taken me when I was in South Korea reporting on the Olympics in Pyeongchang and I was covering uh -huh. Chloe Kim's gold medal run and my parents saw me on NBC behind Chloe Kim and they were like texting me while it was happening and I think that freaked them out because like I was halfway across the world and I was on their television um that was a very very odd experience um but to circle back to your first question you know I started a bleach report uh you know, I think a lot of journalism students, you come out of school with like rosy eyes, you coming off the internships, you have a very idealistic view of the industry, right? And uh, literally my first day at Bleacher Report, my, my old boss, Ben Osborne, who's one of my favorite people on planet Earth, um, he told me, hey, so if this isn't working in six months, we're probably going to lose our jobs. And he meant like in terms of traffic. And I was just like, well, okay, well, that means I have to like really do this now. Uh, and thankfully, within like two months, those concerns were gone because our traffic was doing fine. 
Um, but that's when it became real. And I was like, oh man, I really have to work. And like, it's really a hustle to make it. Cause even at like Bleach Report's in a good place. It's owned by Turner uh, and AT&T. It was owned by Turner at the time. It's now owned by AT&T. Uh, it had re- relatively co- stable corporate backing. Uh, it's a much better situation than 99.999% of sports writers. And even there, they were still like, hey, you know, we got to get traffic really quickly or else like we might not have jobs. And that was when it was like, oh, okay. I, this is the reality of the industry. I have to work my my ass off. So um, that was kind of my introduction. And then, uh, you know, just spend a lot of time at Bleacher Report uh, doing doing a lot of different things there. When that kind of um, edict is, is thrown at you of, you know, perform or get out or, you know, make sure that your stuff gets read. And how ben much didn't, control? Ben didn't, no, just to just to talk about that, Ben didn't mean that as like a threat. It was literally just a fact of the matter. Like, well, hey, sure, here's sure. the situation. Well, but but it's like in any incentive driven profession, right? Whether you're in sales or anything, it's you know a results driven thing. Um, curious to know if that was the case or if that was just the way the industry was. Um, how much control or influence did you have on the stories that you covered, or did they give you a topic and say write it the best way possible? Because if you are to be judged one day on the performance of something, curious about the creative process behind it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I would say that at Bleach Report specifically, I mean, ESPN and Bleach Report are very different jobs because ESPN drives the news cycle, right? Like people go to ESPN to find the sports news. So there is mm-hmm. sports news that people need to report on there so people know what's happening, period. Right. The thing that's different with Bleach Report is that I mostly wrote features. So I would say like 90% of the things that I wrote, I probably pitched. Um, I had a lot of creative control in that job in terms mm-hmm. of just the things that I was pitching and writing about. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I figured I trusted in my ability to tell good stories and report good stories. And if the thing that I I had felt in the past just from my work is that if you told a good story people are going to connect with and read it so i just trusted that i didn't try to think too much about the numbers although i was definitely conscious of what they were um i was not driven by the traffic numbers because like there would be stories where you know there's there's been multiple stories where like i didn't really think it would do that well and then the traffic numbers completely blow it out of the water in a way that like i couldn't have possibly imagined um and so I don't know. It's it's a it's one of those things where yes, there was definitely a sense of pressure there, but I don't know. I'm a first generation Asian American. Like I felt a lot of pressure, just like trying to like establish myself in this country, as I'm sure a lot of Asian American first generation Asian Americans feel. Right, like having to live up to the expectations of a corporate boss. Yes, like I was still establishing my career. Like it's not that scary in the grand scheme of things. Like my parents did. Like my parents coming to the U.S. was so much scarier and and crazier than anything I have to do in the deal with in the media industry in New York City. You know, like um, it just kind of puts puts all that in perspective, I guess. So uh, when you when I when I think about it that way, it's just like, all right, I just got to do a good job and make sure that I don't have any regrets and that I don't get you know too caught up in my feelings or whatever and get distracted. <laughs> like just make sure that I'm doing good work and like things worked out. You posted a few days ago for Mother's Day on that very topic, you know, paying homage and and respects to your mom for doing the crazy thing of moving to a new country and not knowing the language and just all of our parents did that. You know, Uh, we all came in our own different way under different circumstances. Uh, Many come the way your family did in pursuit of education. Um, But yeah, when we think about that and then even go back a generation of our grandparents, 
uh, going through occupation, war, um, other folks and from other friends, um, literally getting here by boat. It does really put things in the perspective of the problems that we are having are literally champagne problems that, you know, it just puts it into perspective. I, I think that's um, very, very cool. Um, June, I, I want to ask you about some of the stories that you've covered. You mentioned the Chloe Kim story, um, and we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about um, your appearance uh, during the Korean baseball broadcast on ESPN. Um, content is very, very important, but I think more than content, context is. And for you to have interviewed Chloe Kim and covered her for Bleacher Report during the Olympics, there's so many storylines there, right? It's in Korea. Both of you guys are Korean-American. Um, but, you know, uh, one is competing for American and, and you are writing for an American audience. Um, tell us about that experience. Did you pitch it? Was it asked of you to cover her? And take us through that little journey of going to Pyeongchang in 2018. Yeah, Uh I so two months into me working at Bleacher Report, they asked me to cover the Olympics, which was when I calmed down because it was like, oh, they're planning for me a year in advance to do this. I'm fine. Um, so that was the moment where I calmed down, honestly. Uh, and it definitely partially had to do with the fact that I spoke Korean, right? Like there would be a lie if it wasn't like it was an advantage for me over every single American reporter that was there who was not Andrew Kev, the New York Times, who was also Korean American. Like it was literally one of the biggest advantages I had as a reporter there. Um, and so I was something I did in the lead up to the Olympics and just profiling Chloe in general was seeing how American outlets were covering Chloe and wanting to not do that because I knew that I had something different to bring as a Korean American in terms of perspective to her story that American outlets weren't going to have. So I wanted to wait and see how other outlets were covering her. Uh, and so the angle that I ended up taking for the story, I don't know if you've read it, but uh, we, I, we went to, um, uh, I was in the, it was at the Olympic media day in, in Park City in Utah, where all the Olympic athletes were and all the media were gathered, we were gathered in this resort and uh, it was just like a, in conference rooms and, and stuff, there were press conferences all day. And um, I, I was the only Asian American reporter there with Chloe uh, and was just asking her very specific questions about Asian American identity. Um, and it was pretty clear that just from her answers that it was, she was a teenager, right? Like she, all of her answers were the same answers that my sister would have, my sister as a junior in high school would have given at her age. Um, I think she was 16 at the time. I would have given at 16 at the time, but none of the other American reporters knew the context of what our conversation was. So Chloe brought up the fact that she sometimes felt like a, uh, either a Twinkie or banana. I don't remember what the specific phrasing was. When I went back and looked at the coverage of that press conference, nobody used that quote. And I thought that was by far the most revelatory quote of, of what she said there. And that's kind of sent me down this whole journey of um, what that word means and also if other Asian Americans had felt that way before. So I ended up interviewing Christy Yamaguchi about this. And she basically confirmed that at Chloe's age, she had the exact same feeling where she felt like a Twinkie. And so I basically wrote, wrote that out and I, and I published it. I think it was received well, um, although I'm pretty sure... Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a really, it was a really, uh, interesting situation to profile Chloe in the lead up to the Olympics. And then obviously going to Korea and covering her there, everyone was on this American dream, like boat thing with her. Right. Uh, and just talking about how her dad, you know, the NBC package made it, made it look beautiful. Right. And that's how most Americans are going to view Chloe's story. Um, just, just cause that's how it is. Right. Um, but it was very weird to, when Chloe won gold, 
Uh, it was very weird to be standing there as the only Korean American covering it, being able to speak to Chloe's dad in Korean about it and get stuff that other American reporters can't get because he speaks Korean fluently and he does not speak English fluently. I understood like the depth of what he was saying because of his tone, the context. He had a bigger vocabulary, just like that by itself. So I had all this stuff from that reporting process, um, just you know, that took advantage of my Korean identity. Uh, and the fact that I can speak Korean at a third grade level. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then once you, once I was like back in my hotel room, you sit back and it's just like, wow, I am a Korean who was born in Seoul, who moved to the United States, who's now back in Korea covering a Korean American for an American outlet. It was like a very world, like world, like life comes full circle moment. Uh, and it, uh, it just made me feel proud for, you know, obviously there's a lot of issues with Asian Americans in America right now, but uh, it made me feel very proud in that moment to see that that kind of thing was not only possible, but that it had happened, right? Like the thing that I dreamed about for such a long time was making sure that those stories were told well. And I feel incredibly proud of the coverage that I did of Chloe because I felt like it was honest and uh, it was it was what how I want, would want a Korean American like I constantly think about how I would want things covered when I was 16, and I just try to be that person all the time, um, which can can uh, lead to different levels of pressure and anxiety or whatever. But like, um, you know, that's something that I, you know I, I thought about constantly with Chloe. Is like, I want to make sure that she's covered fairly and people know who, like, honestly who she is and what she's going through. And like, uh, I felt like I did that during during that, and it was a uh, it was a uh, honestly like a very very proud moment. It was like one of the first moments where I felt like truly Asian American in like a unique way because like this was a uniquely Asian American experience to have. I don't think there would have been another person more perfectly suited to cover her, given your age and stage in life and her age and stage in life, the similarities between both of your fathers coming stateside through education to pursue a better life for you guys. And then one's a journalist and one's a professional skateboarder. Holy crap. That's not what good Korean kids are supposed to do, right? Supposed to go to school and and get some extra degrees, but um, you're right. It's the context of storytelling is so much more important because there are nuances in language and in tone and in energy that you can't capture. And, And so and, and we have those blind spots and biases if we're asked to cover something that's not culturally uh, you know, known to us or familiar with us. Um, that's cool, man. Uh, I respect it. Um, we need more of that, right? Because I think leaning into, it's not necessarily leaning into the identity, but as you said, you have the given talent of language and cultural understanding. And, and so why wouldn't you be the best person to tell that story, right? And um, I, I remember the, the Toyota advertisement that came out during that time it was just a story of you know her dad picking her up all the time and just making it his life to see her succeed and those are things that are innately natural for us it may not be so natural um, given the context of as you alluded to in your tribute to your mom like doing everything for us coming to a brand new country um you know geez uh I'm 36 now. My dad was about close to this age when we moved here, right? Like, and for me to imagine, all right, let's take the kids, let's jump on a plane, let's go to a place where we're sort of know the language and sort of can fit in, but that's insane. I I can't do it. I 
you know, I, I don't think I would volunteer to do it, which is insane, but our parents did that. Um, so thanks, man. I, I think it's um, unknowingly, knowingly or unknowingly, June, I think you've now inspired more younger folks to ask the questions, right? And it's something that I noticed, observed about Chloe was it was one of the coolest things because every American saw her as one of their own and said, go USA. And then all the Koreans were like, no, she's still one of ours. And it's in Korea. So like for once, like, you know, Korean Americans and everybody was just on the same team because a win for her meant a win for both countries. Yeah. And, and that was kind of po- that was the most poetic part about it as someone, you know, I think there's a lot of I think a common struggle in the Asian American community, just finding identity because of the lack of history in this country that Asian Americans mm-hmm. have is like a unified group of people. Um yep. But that was like one of the like Linsanity was one of them like and this was one of those moments where it's just like wow this is this is crazy this is something that's happening in what was it 20, 2018 or whatever like yep. it's it was uh yeah it was a, it was a really it was a really really cool time and I I'm I'm incredibly grateful to have been lucky enough uh, that my editors you know put me in that position to experience that because it's something that I will definitely never forget. That's you know and it it's whether we like to or have to. Um, that a dual identity is something that we just have to live with, right? Um, people will always ask us for our perspective as the Korean side, not just the American side, right? And that's something that, you know, whether it's Chloe or Michelle Wee or anybody that looks like us that performs at the world's highest stages will always get asked. And I'd rather have you ask them that question than somebody who's never experienced life as an immigrant, never been called racial slurs, never been made to feel other because that mutual understanding of you don't even need to say it. I know where you're coming from. That's the whole story. And that's, as you mentioned, the lifeblood and sort of the ethos of the story that is already there as a baseline. So cool, man. Um, um, let's talk about ESPN. Um, you were there at Bleacher Report for about two and a half years. Uh, you get the call to go to ESPN. Um, obviously, Media landscape is changing very, very quickly. People don't watch SportsCenter at 10 p.m. as much as they used to. We get a lot of our sports news on demand through apps, through social media. Um, And one of the first things that you did at ESPN was to go cover the Boston Red Sox going to the White House, which was almost to the day or I guess next week, May something, right? Um, Share with us that experience of transitioning from Bleacher Report, where, as you said, you're covering features and then going shifting gears a little bit into uh, covering news plus um, news with an angle and, and talking about that and um, specifically about share with the story or two about going to the White House. Yeah, I uh, so they basically my editors basically put me on the Red Sox beat for all of last season uh, and I was commuting between Boston and New York, which was which was pretty intense. It was it was definitely a different experience just because it was a day to day news cycle. Last, admittedly, last Red Sox season wasn't very compelling. They were kind of a mediocre team where they weren't good enough or bad enough to be super super interesting to write about. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that was I mean it was it was definitely a great experience just because like it's you know I I grew up loving the Red Sox right they were my childhood team they meant a lot to me just just like. Have the experience of covering the Red Sox for ESPN was that by itself was really surreal. Just because one of my biggest mentors is uh, is Gordon Eads. He's now the team historian for the Red Sox, but he used to be the Red Sox beat writer. And uh, and so to, to be able to 
to say that I did the same job as, as Gordo, which is, uh, who's one of the, one of, one of the people I really looked up to a lot professionally growing up, uh, was, was something that meant a lot to me. Um, it's definitely, definitely a different experience. I mean, going to the white house, I mean, it's obvious the white house is obviously a very, very politically charged place nowadays. And lots of people have lots of varying different opinions on it. For me, I went there for work, right? It was literally a news story and it was my job that day. The Red Sox were in Baltimore. They won the World Series and and uh, they had chosen to go to the White House. So I had to go to the White House. It was pretty crazy. I mean, like the White House is the White House, right? Like regardless of who lives in the White House, the White <laughs> House is one of the most famous buildings in the history of human civilization. And so just like, be on the lawn and like see the building and be like, damn, Lincoln lived here. George Washington lived here. Like all these historic people lived here. Uh, that was really, really surreal. And also just to like, I, I graduated college in January, 2017. Like, I don't think I could have remotely expected ever ending up at an event at the white house, you know, like um, even just as like an immigrant, like when I, when I was, when I was there, I was just constantly thinking about the fact that like, uh, my parents could have, couldn't have remotely expected like their son when they moved here when they were two months old getting invited to the White House to work. You know, like I, I, it, it was a very self-reflective moment uh, because it was just like I can't believe I'm at the White House in this professional capacity. Um, I can't believe I'm like standing at the White House podium in the press briefing room. Like, um, and then you see the President of the United States and like he's a person, right? Like he's a dude. At the end of the day, he's another dude who breathes, and like just seeing that in person was like, oh wow, okay, the president is a person. Uh, it was it was a it was a it was a very overwhelming experience for a lot of different reasons, yeah. And so obviously, the, the last few weeks, uh, sports gone, right? Um, NBA, NHL, everybody was optimistic, um, unrealistic optimistic that baseball would get its start on time, and. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, ESPN didn't do any original live sports, obviously, because there was none. And they started broadcasting video games. And then most recently, they struck a deal to broadcast some games from Korea, which the time difference is odd. And, um, you know, no fans, just a very different, interesting experience covering the KBO. I am a proud original inaugural member of the LG Twins Kids Club that was started in 1996, got me and my brother both got matching jerseys with our names on the back, and we were like fully decked out. So I'm an LG Twins fan for life. Can't name a single player on it, but I will rep them. Um, <laughs> you were brought on the show, which is how uh, we met, because uh, our, our mutual friend Sopan had tagged you and, and said, how cool is this? Um, you were brought on to bring in a little bit of uh, perspective and um how important is that to your job to be not the token because that's not what it's about, but to be the voice that can jump between both sides of culture and language and be the bridge to make sure that not just your colleagues at ESPN, but the greater audience has a richer and more meaningful understanding of some of the nuances that might be missed on TV. Yeah, it's definitely important. Something I thought about a lot over the course of the last couple of weeks because uh, you know, obviously it's not in my job description, right? But the reality of the situation is like, I just know, even if I don't know that much more, right? Like I still know more than they do because like I've been to a KBO game. I've been to Korea. Um, 
So like that by itself, uh, for me, like the most, the thing that I really, really appreciated about um, some of the KBO coverage on our network um, was here, seeing how people like Boog Shambi, who was announcing, who's, who's announced a bunch of the games, Boog was calling me or sending me audio messages constantly last week asking mm. me about pronunciations. And for me, like, it's obviously not in my job description to be, you know, helping broadcasters with their pronunciations of names, right? But I feel a cultural responsibility as an like American who cares about sports, who's Korean, that whoever's watching this and learning about Korea for the first time, that they hear the names as close to correct as possible. Um, so that's something I cared a lot about. Uh, and so uh, I've just, for me, I've just tried to be as, as, as open a resource as possible for people at the company. And I think I've made it clear enough at this point where it's like, hey, if you need any questions, need any help, no matter how big or dumb, I'm willing to answer them. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I think you know. I think uh, I think there's. I'll probably go back on the broadcast at some point. I was talking to Boog, um, but you know, we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting just to see how this, the coverage around the KBO continues to develop, uh, yeah. especially as we see whether or not Major League Baseball is going to get back off the ground, and uh, as we just get more and more weeks of KBO baseball, how do fans react to it? How much are people following along? It'll be interesting to see all those things. I think. That's cool because it's not so foreign as people think it is, right? As you mentioned, Pyongyang Kim now is back there. Um, our, our friend Hank Conger is an assistant coach on the Lotte Giants. He played in the majors. you know. So you have people in across the league and in various teams that also have American experiences that can speak to that. And, and so I think giving that perspective from the booth and not portraying it as something that happens in a foreign country, but it is so intertwined, right? Um, baseball, particularly of all the major sports, is the most um, Asian-friendly. It's the most culturally diverse sport in America, right? Like people like to associate baseball in America with white people, but if you go into a baseball clubhouse, there's Latin people, there's white people, there's Asian people, there's yep. black people. Like it is as representative of America as any sport. Uh, because you have all of the different cultures and everyone has to kind of figure out how to live with each other. Um, yeah. Everyone comes from different cultures. Everyone has different preferences. Not everyone loves each other, right? Like this isn't a sports movie where everyone's best friends or whatever. Like this is, th these are people's jobs. It's, 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 it is obviously not like every other office, but it also is like an office to a certain degree and that you have coworkers and stuff, right? So all of that stuff kind of, you know, plays in. Um, but yeah, it's baseball is the most culturally diverse sport. And, um, you know, it's it's one of the it's one of the first places I saw Asian Americans growing up, uh, in or just Asians in general in the main pop cultural landscape in America growing up. So, um, it's definitely a place where I think a lot of Asian American progress generally has has been made. And, and I want to shout out the people not just on the field and not in the booth, but the people who are uh, in the leagues and in the teams. Um, our friend Martin Kim worked for the Dodgers, worked for Major League Baseball for a long time. He's involved in a big way with esports now. Uh, one of my biggest fans and uh, my closest youngs, Tad, you know, agent to basically every single Korean dude that plays baseball. Um, he's itching to leave home because this is like prime traveling season for him and um, he isn't still baseball. Um, but guys like that, um, you mentioned earlier uh, your mentors, um, Asian American Journalists Association. Um, how has that connection of the cultural context of association helpful has been helpful to you in your progress and 
what would you like to leave to other young folks who might be now looking up to you and saying, holy shit, there's a guy that looks like me on ESPN. He's written about Chloe. He writes culturally important and necessary stories. And now you're the Michael Kim that I used to stay up until midnight watching. What do you say to those guys? Yeah, I don't like to think about that that much honestly uh it's because it's a little bit terrifying honestly just uh i i've i've gotten some notes from like very nice notes from high schoolers and stuff it's it's very odd to like find myself on the receiving end of some of those notes it's incredibly humbling um and it makes me feel like i've pursued the things that i've pursued for the right reasons so um that makes me it, ma- it makes me happy in that regard um what was the what was the what was the question? Talk about the network of journalists that you know. I mean, yeah, it's. I just i i attended my first Asian American Journalists Association conference three years ago. It was in Philadelphia, and uh, a lot of my biggest mentors in the journalism industry specifically have come from that. You know, one of uh, one of my biggest mentors at ESPN, or two of my biggest mentors at ESPN, Carolyn Hong and uh, Michael Michael Wong. Uh, they're they're both incredibly involved in the Asian American Journalism Association Conference. Uh, and when I got to ESPN, you know, th- they worked in different departments than me, but they were the first people that I went to. And I was like, hey, like, like obviously if something like, they were just great uh, resources just to like talk to about how to navigate um, this company as an Asian American. Because, uh, you know, every, 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 everybody has their own challenges in different ways, uh, just given the work stuff. And then I've met a ton of, you know, like-minded friends who are also in the journalism industry. Um, and also just like people who think completely different from me at the journalism industry, um, at these conferences, I think it's just a great way to see how different people in the world think. Right. Uh, and then it's also just a great opportunity to like release some stress. Uh, you know, you have a bunch of people who like understand a lot of the work problems that you're going through and you just like chill and have fun and, you know, you know, people are drinking soju and people are going out to karaoke and stuff. And uh, it's always a good time. I don't know. I, I'm not much of a partier, uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's always really fun to just have that network of people who are experiencing similar problems to you do in, in the industry. So uh, just having that emotional support system is, is very great. And, uh, you know, I definitely I definitely would not uh, yeah, without my entire emotional support system from AJA to my friends and my family, like there's no way I would have been able to get to this place in the first place. So, um, I, I feel incredibly grateful for everyone who's just taken time to invest in my career and my, my interests and all that stuff. So, um, you know, I feel, I feel incredibly grateful for, for all of that. I mean, formal mentorship associations are good. It sounds like you've been the beneficiary and now the giver of informal mentorship across the board, because, that I think is more important, right? It's the the things that are set off the record. It's the text messages. It's the checking in, how you do, and how can I help? And because behind the scenes is where a lot of the the good good support happens. And you know, it's not us against the world, but we live our own unique experiences. And as you mentioned, being an Asian American in different organizations is a different thing. So uh, when somebody pulls you aside, or when somebody you know congratulates you, or meet, says good job, like it just hits a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I, I've been lucky, obviously, doing this and everything else. None of us are here alone. And none of us will leave this world or leave our legacies alone. And so um, kudos to you, man. Um, at such an early part of your career to do the things that you've done, uh, not just on the world's biggest stages, literally, but in such a meaningful way that covers stories and covers people that only you can understand. 
and that you are the most capable person in the entire building, literally, or an arena full of people, the only person that can tell that story because of who you are. And yes, we are going through very, very challenging times as Asian Americans. And if you're a young person listening, it might be easy to start resenting your identity and resenting what you look like, but please do not. You are far more richer and you are a better person that you can speak to languages, that you can see different things from different angles. And one day you might grow up to write about somebody else winning a gold medal, standing side by side with their, with her immigrant father, asking her questions, asking him questions rather, that only you can. June, you're a badass. I, I cannot wait to see uh, you more on TV, read all the things that you write, um, to see you progress in your career. Um, when all this crazy stuff is behind us and the Red Sox play in L.A., hopefully for the World Series, we'll go We'll go drink that. The All-Star that game was supposed you. to be in L.A. this year. I, you know, well, shit, come for the world. Oh, Jesus, that yeah. Come for the All-Star game. Maybe it'll be a virtual All-Star game. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll drink that soju. We'll go karaoke. Uh, we'll, we'll have uh, Uncle... <laughs> Uncle Tad, take us out, um, and it'll be a good time. Um, thanks for all that you're doing, man. I think uh, it's so awesome. As, as I kicked off the show with seeing somebody that looks like us, yes, that's important. Knowing that that person then has taken on that responsibility to tell the story in a way that only you can and to leverage the platform and to give the context that only you can, that's the juice. That's the best thing that I think you can do with your gifts. Um, and, and yeah, so to, to all the aspiring journalists, content creators, video, whatever you're doing, um, keep at it. Um, June, June's a living testament of hard work, uh, parent sacrifice, love and all that stuff um, to, to get to where he is today. Um, I want to end the show, June, on the same way that we end all of our shows, which is a nod back to the name of the show. Uh, the Asian Americans was a project that I started um, as a, as a uh, gift to my daughter. Um, but also as a gift to the community. It's a love letter to us, from us, uh, ultimately for us. Uh, we didn't grow up with all the good role models that we had, as you mentioned, in various fields that we wanted to pursue. And so I want to change that narrative with this. I want to change that narrative with having as many conversations of people that look like me and you doing various amazing things. So share something with the Asian American community that you want to share. Um, and so I will start the letter, and if you can help us finish out the show by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Sure, sounds good. Oh, d- oh, I, I, so I start now. Okay, <laughs> I, I get what we're doing now. Okay, um, I think the thing that I would say was that stick to your convictions and your belief beliefs, and also realize that your experience is valid and has value because. I think all of the most rewarding reporting experiences that I've had so far in my career have come as a result of exploring questions that I've wanted to explore about myself to a certain degree, whether that's, you know, through Chloe thinking about my own Asian American identity or um, just understanding that you're the experiences that you're going through. uh, It can feel like the end of the world sometimes, right? If you're just not talking to anything, anybody about it, but it's also important to realize that I've come, I've come to learn that, a lot of the same emotional things that I've experienced or I've gone through, literally everybody else is going through. And that's what ultimately connects us as storytellers is, is that unified emotional experience. Uh, 
falling in and out of love, all of that shit. So uh, uh, that's that's what I would say. It was it was just to stick to your convictions and beliefs and um, and uh, pursue things with integrity as much as you can. Very cool, June. Thank you so so much. Uh, follow June on Twitter at June Lee. Follow him on Instagram at June. I don't know how the hell you got at June on Instagram. That's pretty cool. There's some social media people at ESPN. That is not me. Well, I'm sure people at ABC Disney know people at Facebook, Instagram, and they make you very easy to find and discoverable. Um, and again, a big, big shout out to our mutual friend, Sopan Deb, who has been on the show, who is on a book tour. Uh, your sweater looks from like his a house. Co- from his house crazy he's on a book tour from his house it's a crazy thing that he's doing you should go people should go buy, buy sopan's book too it's uh he's he's an incredibly talented writer he's an amazing guy um listen to it on audiobook too if you if you don't like to read he reads it obviously in his voice i'm not sure if i want to have my friend reading his book to me like i think that's a, a slightly odd experience to go through why i don't know it, it feels really intimate in a way that like i'm not sure that i'm totally comfortable with Maybe it's because of because you know him, right? But yeah, like it's that's that's been that's been something that's been weird is reading this book. It's been like I know Sopan and Wesley really well, and I'm reading about them in like the third person. It feels very very odd. Well, this he, is a very writer problem to have. This is not a super relatable problem to have. Well, everybody creates, right? We 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 write whether it's a status update or a tweet. Everybody creates something, right? And I think he he's you know I mean just pick who could have predicted it's that was one really long his book is a one really long facebook status and i mean took two years to write and went to a different continent process, and yeah. all you know but he's been so gracious um we we i wanted to do a book giveaway on the show um he covered it he signed it he sipped it over yeah. um he's introduced me to uh fuke tran who wrote saigon who i've had on the show and that's leading us to a lot of cool opportunities so so, Pan, if you're listening, hope all is well in South Carolina. Keep selling those books. Buy that book. So, Pan's the best. Go buy his book. And he, and he got featured in on the Sunday opinion page of New York Times. How cool is that? Yeah, that was awesome. That was so exciting. Yeah, that was super exciting to see. Hey, if you're out there and you're scared to write, just write. Um, reach out to June. Reach out to So, Pan. There are mentors. I never got an A in an English class, too. So, I never <laughs> once got an A in an English class. So... None of that matters. It does matter, but not like the grades don't matter. Uh, yeah, don't don't tie. Getting yeah, an A in English class doesn't mean you, you, yeah. Just because you uh, get an A in an English class doesn't mean you're. Yeah, I don't, that, that professor's opinion doesn't matter as far as your your possibilities and your. Oh, I could have been a better student. That's more my fault that I didn't get an A in English class. You wrote about Boston sports sitting in Ithaca and went to hockey games. That's okay. Uh no, but this is this is like through high school too. Like I was never a good. I was never a good English student. All right, man. Thank you for your time. Come back on the show anytime. Looking forward to hanging out with you together in LA. Um, and, and for all of you out there, please keep writing. Please write whatever your story is because it matters. And, and just like June, you, you might be on the world's greatest stage telling the story the only way you know how. So don't let anybody tell you no. Write, press send, press publish, even if nobody reads it. Um, please write and reach out to all the people who are continuing to blaze trails in front of you because we That's really need... good advice. That's something I did too, and was really, really good advice. Was reach out to all the people you look up to because they ended up. Dude, everybody's so. home right now. You know, so Twitter DMs, Instagram DMs, emails. I cold messaged you, and you said, "Cool, let's do this." I, you know, a lot of my guests turn out that way, and so 
you know, we, we have the gift of time right now and the gift of perspective. So let's make the most of it. Uh, June, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it means so much um, as, as a fellow Korean American brother to see you on TV and to see you and do and read the things that you write about because those are stories I desperately wish I had growing up. And to know that kids today, and particularly my kids when they grow up, will have that to read and have you to see on TV, that means a lot. Thank you. That, that means a lot. Thank you for having this space. This is a really cool uh, thing you're doing. Come back anytime, and we'll see you in LA, brother. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in, and I really hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as they did having it with June. Still so cool that I think he did that. Uh, he was able to share that story about Chloe. And for all the fun and amazing and, and life-changing things that he's been able to do at such an early part of his career, really looking forward to seeing what he creates, what he writes, what he shares with the world. And most, most importantly, really excited for the impact that we'll have on so many young Asian Americans who dare to dream of being a journalist, dare to dream of telling stories not being told today. And perhaps the most significant part is that we get to tell stories that only we can because we understand the story. We understand the struggle. We understand everything even before we utter our first word. So thanks again to June. Thank you, brother. Best of luck in your career. And Excited to see what comes of uh, your life, man. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to share it out with a friend or two. Send them the link or screenshot this on Instagram. Tag us at the Asian Americans on Facebook and on YouTube as well. Send us a DM if you have any thoughts or questions or comments to share with me about the show. And if you'd like to come on the show yourself, uh, there's a link on the Instagram page for you to apply to be on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. It's been an honor, a pleasure mostly fun to share these stories out with you. Looking forward to sharing more conversations. Um, and next week, we're going to be sharing a story with the two sisters behind Amsam, Vanessa and Kim Pham. And just like we did with the Kim brothers of Soul Sausage, we're going to do each interviews with them and then come together for a together episode to share stories with the sisters together. So come back, subscribe if you haven't already, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a, a review. And I will see you next time. Please stay safe, please stay healthy, and be well. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.